Life is hard. Life with chronic, critical, and complex health concerns is even harder. We all know someone who is struggling with health issues or disability. It might even be you. And in the pain and suffering, we wonder if it's possible to move from surviving to thriving. We struggle to hope, struggle to persevere, struggle to trust that God knows what He's doing. But in the struggle, there is real hope, and it's possible to be rooted and ready to weather the storm. Welcome to the Bluestem Project Podcast. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to the Bluestem Project Podcast. It's good to be here with you. And it's my sincere hope that by listening, you're better equipped and encouraged for the journey of suffering, hardship, and trial that comes with health issues and disability. And it's my prayer that you're drawn closer to God and rooted deeper in the Son, Jesus Christ. In this episode, we're going to continue our series on considering Jesus, taking uh, our cue from Hebrews 12.3, which says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And it's my firm belief that thinking deeply on Jesus and what he endured is energy and strength for the body and the soul in times of suffering and trial. So in the previous episode, we looked at governing authority and in particular a ruler of the land who opposed Jesus when he was just a baby or a, a toddler and tried to murder him. That man was Herod the Great. And today we're going to consider the actions of Herod's son, Herod Antipas, or Herod the Tetrarch, as, sometimes, as he's sometimes called, and his wife Herodias, and what they did against Jesus. And in particular, we're going to look at three instances. First, and this will take most of our time, the murderous actions towards Jesus' inner circle. And then second, murderous threats towards Jesus himself. And third, what's really honestly just a blazing reversal of true justice towards Jesus. But let's start first with murder in his inner circle. I'm going to read Mark 6, 14 to 29, and then we'll unpack it a bit. It says this, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. So this, what King Herod heard of, and this is Herod the Great's son, Herod the Tetrarch, he had heard that Jesus had sent out his 12 disciples in the previous passage, and they did really did three things. They proclaimed that people should repent, they cast out demons, and they healed those who were sick. So Herod hears about all of this. And right, two of these things, casting out demons and healing the sick, are appealing to people everywhere. Like, who's going to really disagree with that? But the other one, proclaiming that you should repent and saying that you're a sinner in need of repentance before God, is not appealing to people, and certainly not to this man, Herod. So that's a little bit of the context of what Herod heard. So I'll continue on here. So after Herod had heard about this, and then Jesus' name had got known, the passage says this, Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. So the first two reasons given by people for these miraculous acts is that they're the product of two dead people raised to life and possessing great power. I'll continue on here. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So Herod himself believes that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, which must terrify him since he had him executed, as we'll see in a minute here. And so he's basically thinking what Jesus and his disciples are doing is attributable to John the Baptist being risen from the dead. Continuing on in verse 17. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, 
for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Galilee is where he ruled. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I'll give, you, give to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and asked, said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So Jesus is opposed by the descendants of Herod the Great who tried to kill him as a child. As I mentioned, this is Herod the Tetrarch. I mentioned that he ruled Galilee. Uh, Herod the Great had died when Jesus was young and his kingdom was split in four ways uh, amongst his sons. One of those sons proved so inept that basically the Romans took away his portion and gave it to a series of Roman governors, which the most famous of which ended up being Pontius Pilate. But Herod the Tetrarch, or Herod Antipas, uh, received a fourth, and his area was Galilee. And eventually, he really did want to be the sole heir of his father's kingdom, uh, but only, you know, was frustrated that he only got a fourth. But when your dad has eight plus wives and 50 kids, uh, it's a little bit hard to figure out how you're going to break this all up. This Herod that we're talking about, the Tetrarch, is the main Herod in the gospel accounts. And he honestly, like, he was really depraved, just like his father. The apple doesn't far fall far from the tree. So he, here's what he did when he talks about what John pointed out and called out regarding Herod and Herodias was this. So Herodias was the niece of Herod and his brother Philip. Well, Philip married her. And at one point, Herod and Herodias end up having an affair, likely when he's around the, in his mid-40s and she's 40. And she already has a daughter with Philip named Salome, who's the one who danced uh, in the passage that we just that we just read. And they, they eventually lustful, fall in love, whatever, and come together and decide they're both going to divorce their spouses and marry each other. And this likely happened around 26 AD. And so Jesus' three-year public ministry was likely in the 27 to 33 AD range. And so Herod has this extensive gross sin that's very public, right? Like people know about it. When you divorce a spouse or someone else in the public like that, people are going to know. And men like John the Baptist and Jesus, who preach white hot words against sin and call people to recognize their sin and repent of it, are intolerable to sinners like Herod and Herodias. And I've mentioned this in some previous episodes. Like why were people so hostile to Jesus? And I've quoted this verse a number of times. John 3, 19 21 says this, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So Herod hates John, and apparently his wife, Herodias, hates him even more. 
Uh, Herod at least protected John, we're told, because he saw he was a holy and a righteous man, and he feared what would happen if he did something to him. But Herodias is this very immoral, bitter, manipulative woman. Sometimes she's been compared to the wicked queen Jezebel uh, in the Old Testament who killed the prophet Elijah. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about Herodias' heart and what she's scheming and what she's thinking and how this uh, ultimately leads to John's demise and his opposition to Jesus. But let's, let me first just unpack a little bit for you. Who is John the Baptist? Okay, one, so he's actually a relative of Jesus. His mother, Elizabeth, and Mary, Jesus' mother, were, were relatives. Sometimes in some passages, they're, it's translated that they're cousins. I don't know if we know that for sure, but certainly they were related. And John was conceived similar, well, similarly to Jesus in a, in a miraculous way. Certainly Jesus didn't have an earthly father. It was the Holy Spirit and Mary that conceived him so that he could be fully God and fully man. Uh, John was fully a man, but he was a man filled with the Spirit. But his parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth, were unable to have children. And Luke 1, 6-7 tells us this about John's parents. They're both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. So John's father, Zechariah, is a priest, and while he's on duty, he's in the temple, he ends up going in there after they casted lots to see who would go in and serve, and he's in there. And an angel appears to him and tells him that they'll have a child. And one of the things he says about this child is that he will be great before the Lord. And he also says, and he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, to turn the hearts, maybe the greatest prophet of the Old Testament other than Moses, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Uh, The ministry and the life that John would have was prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. And here Mark 1, 2 quotes what Isaiah said. It says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's life's purpose and ministry is to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. And he's going to do this by preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he didn't baptize anyone who did not confess their sins. So they had to recognize their sin, they had to confess it, agree with God, and then turn from it or repent, and then be baptized. And his, his ministry or his life's work was to do that throughout Israel, to call people to repentance, and that that would prepare the way for Jesus himself to come. And this meant that John preached hard truth about sin to those in power and influence. So the the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't like him. In fact, they didn't um, accept his baptism. Herod and Herodias certainly did not like him. And lastly, let me, let me just mention this about John. Jesus spoke incredibly highly of him. For he said in Matthew eleven eleven, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is risen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John, as a part of his ministry to get people to confess and repent of his sins, calls out Herod's marriage to Herodias and saying, hey, she was married to your brother Philip. This is not a lawful marriage. This is wrong. 
and Herodias nurses an incredible grudge against him. And I don't know that we know exactly why she decided to divorce Philip and marry Herod the Tetrarch. It could have just been lust. It could have been a power play. Either way, and actually, honestly, if I were to think about it, it's probably both. But either way, it's terrible. And she is ultimately unwilling and unable to see her own sin, confess it, and repent of it. She's not willing to see that, hey, this sin is against God, first and foremost. And she's not willing to see that as a leader, that it hurts people, that it destroys a society when people behave like this when they're in power. But rather what she does, she rails against a man, John, who calls her and her husband out. Now, I've already, I've already said this, but at the core of both John and Jesus' message or what they preached was that in order to be saved from the just penalty God will execute on sinners for their sin, you must repent and turn from that sin. And this, this requires a couple things. One, and I've kind of already mentioned this, but like you must realize your sin is sin. And in the case of John and Jesus, it's the most loving thing for men like them to point that out to you. Because dull, numb, blind hearts don't see their own sin. And that's how we all are. We justify it, we ignore it, we rationalize it. And maybe we even revel in it. Uh, But because repentance is necessary to salvation, preaching about sin and calling out sin is loving. So second, after recognizing sin, a person must confess it to God. And this involves an acknowledgement or an agreement with God regarding it. And third, you must turn from it. It's a forsaking of sin and a turning towards God. And maybe just let me mention this as well. In order to be saved, a person must not just turn from sin. they got to turn to someone. So we need to turn to Jesus as the only Savior from sin. And that involves believing Jesus is the Son of God. He's both truly man and truly God. He lived a perfect, righteous life. He died a torturous death for sins. He rose from the dead on the third day. And this was prophesied by the Scriptures. And that we need to place our faith in him. And that when we do so, God wipes away our sins and credits Jesus' perfect righteousness to our account. But Herodias loves her sin, hates the light, and that's John. We read earlier that Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. So it wasn't just a a minor grudge. This is a murderous grudge. I want this guy gone. I want him dead. But she couldn't because her husband, Herod, feared him because he knew he was a, a righteous and holy man. He, knew, he at least knew something that it would be wrong or a bad idea to put to death a man of the type that John was. And if we're to unpack a little bit of the... So the New Testament was written originally in Greek, and we translate it in all the different languages of the world. But the sense in the original Greek of what, was, what Mark wrote about Herodias having a grudge was that there's a sense that she actively sought his death. So she's like a a snake coiled in the bushes, you know, waiting for her time to strike. And so the the situation where her daughter dances for Herod, and this is, again, this is her daughter by Herod's brother, Philip. So he dances for them, and the dance is a pretty provocative one. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur said this about the nature of the dance. It says, this refers to a solo dance with highly suggestive hand and body movements, comparable to a modern striptease. It was unusual and almost unprecedented that Salome, that was the girl's name, would have performed in this way before Herod's guest. 
So Herodias, when Herod, who's a fool, says, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom, she pounces on the opportunity to have John killed, and she instructs him, hey, instructs her, hey, have John's head brought. Now, the fact that, so, so one of the questions in history is, how much was Herodias planning all of this, you know, in her bitter, manipulative, immoral way? Because Salome, immediately after she dances and is told to ask for whatever, she goes straight to her mother and says, what should I ask for? So there's some suggestion in that, that her mother had set this up. But whether she had set it up or not, she so quickly, she knows exactly what she wants. And we're told that Salome goes back in in a hurry to just so immediately tell Herod what she wants. And this shows us something about Herodias. She had a really special sadistic pleasure in having John killed and in having his head brought in. Think about that. You could have him killed and not want to see his bloody head, you know, dead head, eyes, you know, maybe partially open, whatever it would look like. It would look awful. But she wants to see it. She wants to revel in it. You know, some of the worst serial killers in history keep as prizes like body parts of their victims. And throughout history, you know, armies that are victorious or fighters who are victorious against their enemies would sometimes display the heads as a sign of power and triumph. And Herodias loathes John so much with such a vitriol and bitterness that she wants his bloody head delivered to her. And we're told that when Jesus hears about this, the fact that John has been murdered, that he actually withdrew from where he was at in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And no one in history, right, has cared more about the, the scratch on a child's knee than Jesus of Nazareth. So great was his love and compassion. Right, we're talking about a God-man who, who wept with Mary and Martha over the, the death of their brother Lazarus, even though he knew that shortly he would raise him from the dead. And yet he still wept with them. And so certainly Jesus felt the death of John, who was a relative, but who was an incredibly great man that he had called and had partnered with him in this great ministry. While certainly Jesus felt the death of John, it wasn't this hopeless thing, right? There's a, there can be a human or a divine viewpoint that we take towards events in history. Like to us, it looks like for Jesus in his ministry, it's like a step backward, right? Here's this great and powerful man of God who prepared the way for Jesus. He's part of the inner circle. He's useful for ministry, and now he's dead. Yet to God, who controls all things, John de- John's death is no surprise. It's not a problem to overcome. And in fact, his death is a part of God's plan. It's useful for purposes that human eyes cannot often see. In part, John's death served to accomplish the final part of what the mission God actually gave him was. And that was this. Like John said this about the, the final part of his ministry when some uh, disciples came to John and they basically said, hey, Rabbi, he, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So he, he recognizes, hey, I've done my job. Jesus is here. 
I need to decrease and go out of the picture. I'm sure he didn't think that it was going to be his death, um, but God did. And God used John in his life to point the way to Jesus. And John says this. This is actually just a few verses later from what I just read in John 3. It's John 3, 36. He said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Friend, can I ask, have you believed with repentant faith upon Jesus, the Son of God? Do you know that you are his and that you have eternal life? Do you long to obey the Son of God and do you do it? As John said, that is one of the marks that you've believed in him. You love to obey him and you actually do it. There's actually a change in your life. Or is the wrath of God for your sin still remaining upon you? Friend, Jesus, the one that John pointed to, that Jesus invites you to come to him, broken as sinful as you are. And if I could urge you, brother, sister, believe upon Jesus. As you are perhaps contemplating coming to Jesus, I want to move us to a story of a little more direct hostility that Jesus faced from Herod. If John right, who himself was not the light, but um, pointed people to the light, was murdered for shining light into darkness, in other words, by calling out sin, how much more will Jesus, who himself is the light, be hated? I mean, he even said to his disciples, you know, the world can't hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that his works are evil. I'm going to look to Luke 13 here just briefly, and In this passage, Jesus is informed by some of his opponents, actually the Pharisees, that Herod wants to kill him. And he's actually just finished teaching on how to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he said, you know, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, but will not be able. In other words, Jesus talked about the door is narrow, but also that the path is narrow. And he ends up saying in verse 31, that at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here. For Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my course. I find it fascinating that Jesus never fears man. It's really amazing. That's something that this study has done for me is it's really helped open my eyes to just how much opposition he constantly faced and how faithfully and fearlessly he stared it down, how well he persevered. In this case, like he's not afraid of Herod, in part because he's on his own divine timeline. Herod's threats are nothing to him because Jesus knows the time of his death is sovereignly orchestrated and ordained, and no human man is going to be able to mess with that outside of God's plan and control. But it's also really interesting in this verse, or this little passage in Luke 13, to know like the ruler of Jesus' home area of Galilee wants him dead. Right? Like that's a that's a hostility hanging over your head. I haven't. You and I probably have not had anyone in our government who is looking to have us killed. But Jesus still moves forward. He does it for the glory of God, and he does it for you and for me, for the opportunity of eternal life to be given to sinners like us. And I want to close today's episode with this final story. Do you know that Jesus would stand before this same Herod as a captive and that Herod would withhold justice and honor from Jesus? Let me just read later in Luke. This is Luke 23. And it says this, When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, 
he sent him over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at the time. So Herod was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Pilate, who took over uh, one-fourth of Herod's dad's kingdom, heard that Jesus was from Galilee and thought, oh, well, Herod rules up there. I'll send him over to him. And Pilate, in part, wanted nothing to do with this guy. And Herod's in Jerusalem, so he sends him over. And it says this, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he'd heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. So here Jesus is brought over, and there's a matter of justice at hand, and Herod is preoccupied with the supernatural. He wants to see him do some sign. And honestly, like, this has got to be related to he wants to be entertained. He, he doesn't care about justice. He's aloof and uninterested in that. He doesn't take a serious interest in the fate of this man, whether he's innocent or guilty. The way he questions him is meant to lead him into seeing some sign or to get him to show some sign. And the chief priests are sitting there vehemently accusing him. And he does essentially nothing. Except he does nothing good. Except then treat him with contempt and mock him. Think about this. Here's the ruler of, G- of Jesus' home area. And he and his soldiers mock him and treat him with contempt. They put splendid clothing on him and send him back to Pilate. Herod essentially spends money on mocking Jesus. And these two men who are at enmity with each other, at least in part because Pilate is this Roman who has taken or has been given and possesses a part of an area that Herod wants to have that his father had, and somehow this animosity is gone and they become friends, joined together by this cowardly and unjust treatment of Jesus, the Son of God. Friend, I really hope that you see Jesus as the one who loved you so much that he endured hostility like we've covered today so that he might save you from sin and its eternal consequences and the devil. I urge you to look to him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in the trials of life. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of the Blue Stem Project. It's been a pleasure having you. And I want to remind you that the Blue Stem Project exists to equip and encourage you in the suffering, hardships, and trials of life that come with health issues and disability. We do this by helping root you in Christ and by giving you the tools you need to be ready for life's greatest obstacles. It'd be an honor to take this journey with you. Please do hit the subscribe button and tell a friend or family member experiencing health issues and medical disability about the Bluestone Project. Mm-hmm.